The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. Donations to RPG research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com donate. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me this week is James Hake. So if you're not familiar with James, he's a uh, lead writer for D&D Beyond, a co-author for uh, D&D Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which I'm excited to get into. And he is also involved in the campaign setting for uh, Critical Role and if you are living under a rock, then you're might maybe not aware that Critical Role has been very much in the news lately. So I'm very excited to talk with him about that as well, and just all things uh, role-playing games. James, welcome to the show. It's great to be on the show. Great to talk with you. Yes, thank you very much for your time. So f- for folks who maybe are not aware of your corner, so to speak, in the D&D and role-playing game world, uh, how do you fit into all this? Um, So like you said, I have been an author on Critical Role products and with the official D&D adventure Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Um, I got my start doing D&D stuff, uh, just sort of writing adventures in my dorm room in college. And at at some point, uh, the the open license in the DM Guild and the DMs Guild uh, allowed me to start publishing. And I've worked with Cobalt Press, uh, small publishers uh, like them, and EN World Insider. That was my first RPG. RPG gig. And somewhere along the way, I started interning for Geek and Sundry as an editorial intern. And that gig got me hooked up with Matthew Mercer and the Critical Role folks. And from there, I worked on the Taldore campaign setting, the first uh, D&D compatible Critical Role book. And uh, I've sort of been doing stuff with them ever since, from art books to uh, to who knows what. Um and so I consider myself uh, someone who now with the platform on D&D Beyond is sort of an ambassador for D&D. Uh, the articles I write there every week, uh, whether they are encounters that people can use in their home games or if they're advice columns or class guides or anything like that. D&D Beyond is kind of the uh, it's it's the front of what D&D is right now. People go there and see and uh, online tool set that will help them make characters easily, that will help them uh, get advice easily, figure out how to be a first-time DM, how to be a first-time player. And so my goal with all of that is to present a, a friendly and accessible and inviting presence that will uh, let these new players uh, play D&D the way they want to and still provide something for people who've been playing D&D for decades and decades. Wonderful. And when did how how many years have you been with the Critical Role crew? So I um, 
Critical Role is now an independent uh, company, but uh, I've never actually been an employee of Critical Role. I was an intern for Geek and Sundry uh, when Critical Role was still kind of in its infancy, but when it came to the Teldora campaign setting and the art books that they produced, I was working with them as a contractor. Okay. And I appreciate you filling me in on that because that was one, actually one of the ways we started uh, chatting a bit last week when I was just responding like many people were about the hugely successful Kickstarter that Critical Role has going on right now. So it's, I, I think, just over a weekend and they've raised $7 million for $7 million. Million dollars. My God. For an animated special that continues to grow and grow and grow and. I have it on one of my screens here, and it just continues to tick up from time to time. It's like it's animated. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't stop ticking up. <laughs> and it still has 38 days to go, so it just seems like the sky is the limit for that campaign. And like a lot of other people in the community, I just not even had thoughts, was just kind of responding to that news and kind of how great it was, and at the same time, like, wow, what does this mean for the D&D and role-playing game community and just trying to figure things out? And I really appreciated your willingness to come in and educate me about some of the relationships and then really the lack thereof of relationships of how Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro, Geek and Sundry, Critical Role, and yourself overlap and also don't overlap, which I yeah. think I think there's quite a bit of, of misconception about that. So, you know, not that I want you to rehash what you were telling me online, but maybe for, for listeners who have similar curiosities and don't know the ins and outs of this, um, could you provide a bit of an overview for that? Absolutely. Well, a, a, an event in the community this big, <clears throat> a Kickstarter with uh, $7 million and growing on the table is bound to cause uh, some of the most extreme emotions you can imagine. Joy, elation, confusion, bitterness, um, even people who are ecstatic for critical role uh, when people who uh, can't make ends meet doing their art to see stuff like this happen. There's bound to be a little bit of uh, uh, fear of missing out and that sort of thing. So I'd love to clarify anything I can. Um, <clears throat> so you want to talk about uh, some of the relationships that Critical Role has, who owns what, who is what, that sort of thing? Well, that was one of the things that I had had that I was intrigued about, because, you know, as an outsider that, you know, certainly has, has not had any kind of relationship to Wizards of the Coast or, or Critical Role. Uh, you know, I play d and I've been writing a blog, doing this podcast for several years and consider myself a little bit of an active member of that online community. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to see this become so successful, which again is wonderful. I, to just to be very forthright, nothing against it. I think it's I think it's it's awesome. It's just yeah, it, it's great that um, that this project is is bringing light to the hobby, and I can only imagine that the people who are involved have been you know, working on this world and these efforts for years. It's not just something that happened overnight. So mm -hmm. there's there's been a lot of toil that, that's gone into this. I, I think the misconception on my end at first was that Critical Role is sort of under Wizards of the Coast. And yeah. that it was like, oh, well, if Wizards of the Coast didn't want to maybe fund this animation mm -hmm. or take a chance on it, then it was like, let's see if fans can fund it, which seemed a little weird. Right. It seems like if Wizards did own Critical Role, that they were kind of passing the bill to the consumer. Right. Um, which is not what 
is reality. Yeah, which is not the case. Yes. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll tell you everything I can from, yeah, from my sure. own perspective. Like I said earlier, you know, I'm not, I'm not an employee of Critical Role. I'm a great friend of, of the entire cast and crew, and I've done work with them. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you my experiences. I've sort of uh, fostered my own relationship with them. Certainly. I uh, appreciate that. Yeah, I I started like I said earlier as an intern with Geek and Sundry, and I met uh, Matthew on the job uh, somewhere around their fiftieth episode, um, and at that point, uh, Critical Role was uh, just another show that Geek and Sundry was producing on their uh, pretty jam packed Twitch channel. Um, and at that point, and I believe this is still the case, Geek and Sundry as well as Nerdist News and Amy Poehler's Smart Girls were all under the umbrella of Legendary Digital Networks. And that was sort of the new media arm of the film studio, Legendary, the people who made Pacific Rim and uh, a whole a whole host of other movies. Um, okay. And, and so that is the way things continued for quite some time. Um, and the general opinion of... Most of the people who I knew at Geek and Sundry at that point was that uh, Legendary didn't really know what to do with them. It was it was kind of a difficult position for everyone to be in um, because new media was a new media. Um, all the sort of tried and true methods that might work for a film studio uh, really had no bearing on this audience. And so the critical role stayed with Geek and Sundry for uh, – hundreds of episodes they're on they're past their 50th episode in their new campaign their second campaign and their first campaign lasted uh well over a hundred episodes so only about a month ago did critical role become an independent company um they had made partnerships while they were with geek and sundry but that was always uh, a sort of arm's length arrangement uh, critical role became uh, friendly with Wizards of the Coast because it was uh, obvious to them that Critical Role was uh, basically the biggest draw to D&D in, in decades. People were watching Critical Role before they'd ever played D&D. They were getting immersed right. in the hobby and in the storytelling and in the gameplay by watching other people play it on a scale that uh, was really unprecedented. No other live stream had the reach or the success that Critical Role had. Um, and so even though no formal business relationship happened uh, between them, uh, Critical Role and Wizards of the Coast became good friends. Uh, Chris Perkins appeared on the show. Uh, Wizards of the Coast tapped Matthew Mercer to um, do other shows for them like Force Grey Giant Hunters, uh, which was a filmed series that uh, took sort of a more celebrity guest approach to the D&D uh, show with people like Joe Manganiello and Dylan Sprouse, uh, Deborah Ann Wool, sort of big Hollywood names, all led by sort of the king of the DMs, Matt Mercer. Um, right. And so when the first Critical Role campaign setting came out, the Taldore campaign setting that Matt and I worked on together, it wasn't a Wizards of the Coast product. It was actually published by Green Ronin Publishing um, using the fifth edition open game license. And so a lot of the things that, that made around 2016 or so. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was at Gen Con. Yeah. 2016 or 2017. I don't okay. quite recall offhand. Okay. Um, so Green Ronin published that 
under the open game license like any other um, any other small press might do. And so despite Critical Role's close working relationship with Wizards of the Coast, um, all of the actual D&D IP that they use in the Critical Role show was removed from that book uh, for legal reasons. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, and so we fast forward a little while, and now we're at the modern day, and Critical Role has uh, separated from Geek and Sundry and Legendary, and so now they are their own independent venture. So uh, I, I think there is some confusion from people who look at Critical Role as if they are still a, a massive corporation. And while I can't deny to anyone that the people in Critical Role have some of the biggest reach and professional clout of anyone doing D&D adjacent stuff today. Um, the fact of the matter is the company Critical Role has probably like 20 people in it. It's a, it's still a reasonably small operation. Yeah. And it's interesting as you're going through the history, and that's why I was just trying to put a timestamp on that a little bit. It's just in my own brain. It seems like these overlapping Venn diagrams that are morphing and shifting over time, Mm-hmm. where it sort of expands and contracts. And it's been, again, as an outsider, just sort of being aware that Critical Role exists. And, you know, of course, Wizards exist, D&D exists. And there's so many people in the community who are generating content. And then it just seems like this got supercharged. And, again, yeah. it's like a lot of people are, are working day in, day night to, to, make, this, to make this happen. Um, so that clarity, I think, certainly helps me wrap my head around it. A little bit more. I think that clarity also brings up new questions huh. <laughs> that questions that you can't answer and I, I can't answer. But this idea of somebody at Watsi being like, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, uh, a actual play show based on their product is making or, you know, bringing in millions of dollars that isn't necessarily going to or isn't going to them at all. It's pretty it's eye-opening. I just imagine there's meetings and people trying to figure this stuff out on multiple ends. Uh, One has to wonder if there was a marketing meeting uh, at Wizards that was like, should we charge Critical Role to use our IP? Right. And it sounds like they haven't. There's been no – and if they, if they have, it's been very quiet. I, I suspect they haven't. Um, but one one has to look at the relationship between Wizards of the Coast and Critical Role and compare it to um, other people, individuals who stream games online uh, for big video game companies. Uh, the Which was another topic we talked about last week. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad you're bringing that up. When, um, you know, let's let's take uh, Blizzard's Hearthstone, for instance. That's a game we've both played. It has a very... Near and very, dear to my heart, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't played in a while, but some of the, some of the hours that I've sunk into Hearthstone have been uh, some of the best gaming moments I've had in a long time. Um, it is a game that is remarkably streamable. Uh, it, it's short play length and it's colorful graphics uh, make it great for people to stream. And uh, <laughs> the way that the players of Hearthstone interact with Blizzard in their community is, I would say, different from how Wizards of the Coast and D&D streamers interact. Hearthstone streamers tend to be the people who go to tournaments, or, or when you get big enough, they are. There's a, there's a direct sort of community effect, and 
uh, I'm not I'm not positive about this myself. Maybe you can maybe you can help me out on this. Are there actual sponsorships coming from uh, video game companies and the people who play their games? I suspect there are, but I'm I'm not close enough to the video game streaming world to say for sure. So and this will be for folks who are really steeped in this lore and this understanding. It it might be a little bit naive on my part, but from I've talked recently with some guests on this pod about esports and the different organizations that are coming up to support players. And uh, there's definitely players who are signed with teams or signed with companies where like they're a part of this faction for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're part of a brand. They play certain games. Um, others are individuals where regardless of what game they play, they have an audience that they take with them. Um, so, I mean, and I think the biggest streamer, Ninja, I think he's mm-hmm. some team that, I, that I'm not aware of. Uh, but I was just looking at his Twitch stats recently as part of another conversation, and it's just hundreds of millions of views. Like, yeah. <laughs> the amount of numbers that that guy is putting up is, is pretty wild. And some of the Hearthstone streamers, I think some of them belong to teams. Others are highly competitive players who are trying to break into the competitive scene and they cultivate an audience. Uh, other popular streamers are guys like Brian Kibler, who uh, is a former Magic player, has designed some other games, and just has a good personality. He casts a lot of Hearthstone Championship matches, or at least did in the past. Yeah, so Brian Kibler's great. Uh, long after I stopped playing Hearthstone, I watched his streams anyway, just because I, I loved his personality and his gameplay. Yeah, he just has a lot of fun with it, and just is you know able to communicate what he's doing and why. And that was one of the reasons I got in, into the game, because I saw a couple of his videos on YouTube. I was like, oh, this looks fun, and that interaction was really interesting and probably only happens all that often he made the best out of it so you mentioned earlier hearthstone's a very streamable game it's a very clip friendly game like you can condense a game of hearthstone into about four or five minutes of all the important clips and it's it's just entertaining like you can buy into it you can learn something and it's interesting watching that happen over the years of how hearthstone and blizzard have cultivated these relationships have even pro uh promoted some of the streamers on the front page of their client. So you sign into Blizzard and it'll have like one of the streamers um, up and there's some. I recall when like new Hearthstone expansions dropped, uh, Kibler would in fact be brought on to be one of the main card revealers when he and uh, Ben Brode would be talking about the new expansion. Yeah. And they'll, they'll farm out the, like they'll slowly release new cards and a lot of different people in the community will get one. They'll have their own uh, YouTube video or or Twitch stream to release the card. So I think it's a mutually beneficial situation where the streamer gets a little bit of a bump because they're connected with this company and the company gets that streamer's audience. And I I see some potential ethical issues there. Hmm. My psychology training of always having clear boundaries with people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a tough nut to crack in terms of streaming period. Yeah. And there's some things where some of the streamers, like they use some pretty offensive language and at the same time, the company's associated with them. And what does that mean? Does it mean anything? Does anyone care? I think D and D has been a lot more careful with that. Uh, from the streaming side of things, as far as I haven't heard of too much in that in that realm, uh, but I certainly know with Hearthstone, there's some streamers who have, 
you know, had some questionable content, but at the same time, they're still being promoted yeah. by, by the overall product. I, I think it's just a hard world to regulate that way for someone who's maybe spending, you know, tens, many hours streaming a week, trying to cultivate an audience and build a product. Yeah. And then, um, like, who's going to watch all that to make sure that they say anything that we don't want to be associated with? It's tough. Yeah. Um, but you basically have to wait for a social media outcry and then investigate from there. Which, yeah, that has its own issues, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you had mentioned how D&D is, I think, built a different type of relationship with the community over the years. I think it is different from fourth edition in some mm. ways when it felt like there was a little bit more of a back and forth with all the bloggers that mm. was out there. Cause that was before streaming. It was like 2011, 2012. Sure. Um, you know, they, I, I was even one of them. They gave me release pages, like preview pages for the, the fifth edition Thunder Masters guide, which was awesome. Is that so? Yeah, I was like, that's great. And I you know, wrote an article about it. It was just very cool to, to collaborate with them. Um, it seems like there's less of that because they have so much of their own stuff to promote or these partnerships that maybe aren't exactly employees, but uh, shows like Critical Role, um, mm -hmm. you know, and entities like that where that entity has its own audience that they've cultivated and how can Wizards leverage that in a positive way and it's mutually beneficial for both. It's just, I, yeah, I find the whole it, thing fascinating. It seems like there's sort of a, a quid pro quo, prid, quid pro quo, whoa, uh, between, uh, between all these people in that they're not sponsored. They're not partners. They're the, as far as contracts go, uh, there's not really any relationship between the two organizations. They just sort of agree to play nice with one another, which uh, seems like a really, a really good thing. Um, but I know how uh, litigious large companies can be. And so one has to wonder if that will stay that way forever or if some, the shoe, the other shoe will drop eventually. Yeah, and that that's just, that was some of the things that I was discussing. Uh, and like I said, I appreciate your uh, willingness to – I wouldn't even say correct me because that sounds too judgmental. But you just <laughs> kind of came in and said, like, no, this is actually how it is. And I was like, oh, okay. And I think we actually had a legitimate back-and-forth normal Twitter conversation, which is pretty yeah. rare. Rare, these, yes. These days, <laughs> I always try to keep things classy. <laughs> so, no, no, it was really good to have an actual conversation. I'm glad it didn't seem to you like I was coming in and, uh, and sea lining all over your comments. No, not at all. And I and I think it was uh, within within a few days after it was clear that this was just blowing up beyond all. I wouldn't even say reasonable expectations. But, mm. uh, you had come in and talked about like, hey, let's use this opportunity to try to shed light on other efforts in the community to make products or, um, you know, to design something. So I think it was this huge thread that turned into hundreds of replies of people kind of nominating other creators who are, have a Patreon or a Kickstarter or some kind of funding process to, to create, to create in the role-playing game landscape. I think you had posted it and Matt had, you know, retweeted it and it became a big, kind of ongoing thread where there was a lot of good work that was getting recognized. That was a really good thread. Um, I'm, I didn't expect 
even that thread to get as big as it did. I knew that there were people uh, who who were so happy for Critical Role and also uh, so so dismayed that all of the attention seemed to be going to one uh, product. Um, and like like I said uh, a few moments ago, Critical Role is still a small studio, but they definitely have uh, all the attention in the world <laughs> right now. Yeah. And so uh, even as someone who's not officially a part of Critical Role, someone who has a relationship with them, I felt like it was it was the least I could do to give people you know, a place to, to self-promote without any shame and a place where people uh, might – get a little bit of visibility. Uh, Self-promotion in this digital age is hard. It's weird. Uh, I, I freelanced for many, many years, and it's still uncomfortable for me to say I made a thing. Go look at it. Um, and it's even harder when you don't have a platform of thousands looking at your social media. It's hard when you're an artist with a Patreon and 100 Twitter followers. How are you going to get seen by anyone? Um, so giving people that platform is really it's important to me and clearly it's important to the cast too given that basically uh, basically everyone in the critical role cast uh retweeted that thread at some point yeah which is great and i know from my very small experience of you know i, I put together this book um, no assembly required last year uh it's some which content. is great by the way oh thank you which is some content for fifth edition D and it's 10 monsters. It's five bucks. There's art in there. There's detailed backstories, step blocks, like plot hooks. There's a lot of, I think, useful content. And it just felt weird to promote it. <laughs> and with the, the team that helped me design the book at Limitless Adventures, I just couldn't wrap my head around asking people to buy it. It just felt weird. Yeah. <laughs> so we had decided, well, let's just use this for charity and then and unfortunately, you know, my brother had ended his life and then it made sense of, well, let's raise money for suicide awareness and suicide prevention. Sure. And that removed a bit of that weirdness of self-promoting because it wasn't really wasn't trying to get money from people. I was trying to raise money, which to me is a difference. And like that freed me up to feel a little bit more comfortable you know, tweeting about it from time to time, mentioning it on like this podcast from time to time or talking about it with other people. And it's still hard. It's yeah. still hard to talk about, hey, look at this work I did. Do you want to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and speaking of, of gaming charity stuff, the bundles that went out to the uh, to Rain, the rape and incest yes. sexual yeah, abuse yeah, yeah. network that happened on the DMs Guild a bit ago, right. I, I loved seeing those go out because not only were they providing – it provided practically a hundred thousand dollars to the to that network all told by the end of the bundle, but it also helped people whose work might not otherwise be seen get seen by a larger audience just by being sort of tossed in with uh, with everything else. Yeah, and I, I remember even thinking about doing some kind of charity effort, and I went back to some of the Dwarven Forge Kickstarters. I was like, you know, mm. if I could tap into like one tenth of one tenth of a percent of that. I could raise like thousands of dollars for suicide prevention. Yeah. Uh, and as it stands, like we've actually sold, I think I haven't checked in a while, but 600 or so copies of that book and raised like $3,000 for American foundation for suicide prevention, which is awesome. Right on. And that's great. And then like you look at these numbers and it just doesn't even seem real. It's like, wow. Yeah. And it's a very small point, but you, you brought it up 
you know, maybe about 10 minutes ago where you're just saying like other people who maybe are, are bitter or have some resentment about seeing this. And, you know, I wonder from your perspective, because you've kind of been on the other end of it, too, of just, you know, trying to get your products noticed and out there. And, and you've had quite a quite some success now with the, the Waterdeep and, you know, other adventures. Kind of, have you had conversations with other people or what what do you say to those folks? So first, like a little bit of context for me, I've been blessed with very good fortune in this industry. Um, I've only been working in D&D for about five years, all told. Um, and I've had the chance to work with uh, some of the titans uh, of RPGs. And so my perspective uh, is skewed <laughs> naturally. Um but I, I really feel for for the people who have uh, who, who are feeling bad about seeing all of this money rush into uh, a project that really, you know, only asked for three quarters of a million dollars. And, you know, only is in big quote marks there. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what to say. It's such a hard situation. Yeah, no, understand. Understandably, I think the thing that it's hard is that, you know, for me, there's no. I think with things like this, I'm really good at asking questions and mm -hmm. I'm not real that great at providing solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I, I think I can ask thoughtful questions and look at it from different perspectives. I think my training and what I do comes into play. There's like an, this empathy component of like, yeah. I'm not in the industry, but I can imagine, Hey, someone who's been doing X, Y, and Z. And now this happens. Like, how does that make them feel? And what does that mean? And, I, I can ask those questions and have those sort of emotional connections. I don't have the solution and I don't really know if the solution exists. I think that's the hard part. I relate to that really hard. I, I reach out a lot to people with an empathetic point of view. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit too much for my own good. I get trapped up in other people's emotions. Um, yeah. But it's, <sighs> You're absolutely right. Finding a, a real concrete solution uh, to people trying to make art and make a living off of making art uh, is is almost impossible. Uh, what what we can do is, you know, we can try and spread awareness. We can try and encourage people to support artists and just the mere existence of platforms like Patreon is a huge step in the right direction. But e even looking at that, it's not really enough. Um, so that's, that's why I made that Twitter thread. That's, that's all that I felt I could do. <laughs> I yeah. talked with people like I, I wanted to make sure that mm, here was my, my initial knee jerk reaction. When I saw that I initially got very offended when I saw people being like, ah, critical role. I, I took it as seeing like, they don't deserve this. And I was like, why, by gum, they do deserve it. They've done hard work and they've donated to charity and they've cultivated this over half a decade. They deserve all the success they get. But that's not what these people are saying. People who are uh, who are unhappy about critical role, they they don't they don't hate their success. They just want people to uh, to look around them and be more observant and be more empathetic and uh, realize that their money might have a better place elsewhere. Um, or if they have uh, the funds to donate, you know, to be someone who backs the Critical Role Kickstarter with like the $10,000 tier or whatever, uh, they might they might consider backing instead at $5,000 and finding some other small artists to uh, literally change their lives with a donation of, you know, a thousand dollars. 
So I I have uh, I have done my best not to not to be angry with people criticizing uh, a thing that I am passionate about and a thing that I love uh, because they're not trying to tear me down. That's just that's just a selfish point of view on my on my part. Sure. Yeah, I think I mean just to disclose a little bit when I saw saw the the news about a week ago, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I was like, wait, what do I? Do I have any conflicted emotions about this? Like, yeah, there's yeah. some jealousy there. There's some envy there, which I wrote about. I was like, you know, it's not anything personal directed towards any one person. I don't know any of them. Uh, but it's just more the, the principle of like, huh, that seems like it's possible. I wonder if if I would have spent as much time as they did to create things, would that have worked out for me? Like you start playing all these mind games with yourself. Yeah. And I, I think that can I mean, I've talked about social comparison with the mm-hmm. whole streaming world before as it relates to Hearthstone. As I remember when I first got into the game, I was really excited and I wanted to create content. I was like, oh, I could do this. This is fun. And then I just realized how many other people were already doing that. Yeah. And I have a, a full-time job. Now I have a two-year-old. It's just like, okay, I don't – I'm not going to make this enough of a priority to really like gain that success. And I'm okay with that. I've made peace with it. Yeah. Um, and but I, I again, I could see people who are putting in that effort and who are putting in the long hours and the, even decades of work. Um, there, there could be some some resentment there. And I think that's OK to talk about without it being it's like, oh, you're against critical role. Like It doesn't have to escalate to that. It can no. just be like, yeah, people are hurting and that that's OK. Yeah. And I, emotions okay run hurting, hot on the Internet. Let's, yeah. Let's acknowledge Let's acknowledge that. And <laughs> how can we all be supportive? Because clearly, I think in the long run, this success f- from Critical Role, what they've done for the hobby, I, I think it can certainly be channeled into many good things. Yep. And it it seems like all the uh, members of that of that community, both the, the players themselves, the, the cast and whoever you said, like 20 or 30 people that are part of Critical Role – and then, you know, the tens of thousands of people or more who were their, their critters, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, that's bringing more eyeballs to this hobby, yeah. which I can only think if, if it's used well is a good thing. The phrase "a rising tide raises all ships" has become something of a cliche in the D and D world uh, at this point. Uh, when the giants of the industry, D and D through Wizards of the Coast and D and D through Critical Role, do well, um, people like to say that the entire RPG industry is buoyed upwards because of it. And even though it's been said so much, uh, it's honestly true. I've seen more growth in RPGs now than I I have in my entire life um and i i I gotta say before i started uh working in role-playing games before i started writing for dungeons and dragons i went to school uh to be a an actor uh i performed on stage and in and in film uh small like student films um and i never saw much success with it, even though I loved to to be an actor. Um, and I got really bitter over it, seeing my my colleagues and my friends uh, really succeed and really start to develop careers of their own um, while I was stagnating and not getting calls back. And uh, so for, I was very fortunate to have another artistic, creative passion that I loved very well and to, and to be successful at. Um, but 
that that experience as as a as an actor who just couldn't do it um, was really valuable to me because I got to see how I how I sabotaged myself by uh, linking my self-worth to other people's success. Um, right. And there, I, I, I don't want to condescend to anyone who's feeling, uh, who's feeling low because of someone else's success right now, but uh, it, it's, it's just impossible to, to think that way and be healthy. Um, I'm, I'm glad I was able to teach myself to get over it. And I still haven't gotten over it entirely. Like, I, I still get jealous all the time when other people are doing well. And I've, you know, and I haven't, uh, I haven't written a new thing in a couple of days. I'm like, ah, that could be me. That could be me doing that cool thing. But I, I've developed the tools I need to keep myself from like devouring myself over it. Yeah. And I've, I've talked about this in the other, other podcast I run with, a. a good friend of mine from graduate school we just talk about the speed of culture and how i think in any kind of artistic endeavor you put something out there and then it's swallowed up by mm -hmm. this sea of content and then it's sort of gone <laughs> so you have, this, yeah. you have this big build up you put all this work creative energy you're excited about something you put it out there and maybe you get a few minutes a few hours if you're lucky a few days of something and then it's swallowed up churned out into whatever void that exists and then it, everyone's on to the next thing yep and you're sort of left trying to figure out where do you put your self-worth together from yeah. and if it's from numbers and feedback and i i think that can be very difficult mm -hmm. and so i think when something like critical role happens where it's like wow people are really excited about this and that's amazing and everyone jumped on board it's really noteworthy because so many things are kind of come and go where yeah. it's like oh that was a big deal for three hours and everyone moves <laughs> on so but again it's not like this happened it's i mean maybe a happy accident maybe there's luck involved but it, i'm just struck by it when i started to do some research after our conversation online i was like well let me because you kind of corrected some of my uh assumptions mm. and i went back and it's like well they've they've been working on this for years and it's not something that just happened. It's kind of the culmination of a lot of work by a lot of very talented people, yeah. uh, including yourself. So, you know, congratulations on that. Thank you. I, yeah, you bring up a very good point. When people uh, feel a certain way about uh, a phenomenon, especially an internet phenomenon, um, they get a truly limited amount of context on, on what is actually going on. I think for people who are only uh, tangentially connected to Critical Role and to what that show is, it can seem like this uh, multi-million dollar Kickstarter came out of nowhere. Uh, like it was just some rinky-dink D&D show going on for a little bit and suddenly uh, people gave, you know, a king's ransom to get a cartoon out of it. Uh, that's not really what happened. There has been a fan base that started with, you know, a, a very, very faithful core audience of maybe 500 people way back uh, when the show began five years ago. And it has grown to be uh, a hundred thousand people watched the premiere of Campaign Two on Twitch concurrently. So you know, at, at its biggest, a hundred thousand people were watching at the same time. There must have been uh, tens of thousands more that sort of tuned in and tuned out over the course of the episode. Uh, this is, this show really has uh, 
cultivated its its fan base and its I, I feel weird saying the word fan base for Critical Role. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm so close to it, but everyone everyone in that group really feels like uh, not just uh, an, an identity, a personality, but they feel like real people. And that might be uh, in part because of how close you become feeling the, – the close you ah, – it might be in part because of how close you end up feeling to them uh, because they're playing D&D, right? They're not just actors. They're they're people who are playing a character. Well, and I think what was interesting, one of the other things that, you know, sort of wrapping my head around all this is that, you know, they're, they're playing D&D, but they're their own entity and they have their mm-hmm. own fans. There's certainly that Venn diagram that overlaps quite a bit between Critical Role and, and D&D fans. And I think what Critical Role has done over the years is they've cultivated and created their own unique fan base. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very fair word. Mm -hmm. And so their fans are supporting them to take their product to this other form of, uh, you know, entertainment, which they're on board with. And it's like at this point, it just kind of happens to be Mm -hmm. D&D. There's a symbiotic relationship there, certainly. but it's it's not like D and D is the product. Critical mm-hmm. Role is the product. Yes. And I think that's hard to if you're just a casual observer of this. And I imagine if it hasn't already, when this gets like more mainstream pickup, like I keep waiting for Matt to be on the Today Show. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. For I real. thought that was going to happen last week. I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh, when are they going to show up on the Today Show? Like Thursday or Friday? <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet, but I think there's still time because yeah. uh, they have, you know, another month left of the Kickstarter. Um, Unbelievable. <laughs> but it just seems like the kind of story of like, oh, in the studio we have this. Yeah, how'd you guys make this money? And what's going like totally clueless folks asking them like really kind of silly questions. Yeah. Um, but I think there could be this conflation of like D and D and Critical Role that I made certainly, and and you've I appreciated your willingness to clarify a bit of that here. Um, like I, I could just see that happening going forward. Absolutely. Um, I I have to imagine that both Critical Role and Wizards of the Coast are very conscious of that fact. Um, I, I noticed recently, and this is sort of the minutia that that only a diehard Critical Role fan would notice, is that um, a few weeks ago when they got a new uh, sort of theme song animated opening to their show, they now have a disclaimer underneath their title talking about the IP that Wizards of the Coast owns. Um, I, I imagine there was some agreement that was met at, there. So I wonder for you mentioned this briefly as as we got into all this. Uh, you talked about writing the, the campaign setting. Like, how are you involved now uh, with Critical Role? Um, yeah. <sighs> uh, it's under NDA. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, I wish I could. I, I had to try. I had to try. <laughs> Valiant effort. Yes. <laughs> um, is is there anything I'm doing with them I can talk about? Uh, what I can say right now is that when it comes to Critical Role, uh, I'm, I'm friends with the cast uh, and I love uh, interacting with them and meeting with them when we happen to be in the same city. And I love being a fan of Critical Role. Honestly, uh, I'm in the very interesting position of being a, a professional in the industry who also has the privilege of just geeking out about their show because I may 
be a freelancer and I may contract for them, but I'm not uh, I'm not an employee. Uh, so I get to be as authentic and geeky and nerdy about the show and live tweet it uh, as much as I want to. Um, and that that tightness with the critical role community that affords me uh, is is really heartwarming to me. And, and so for people who are just hearing about Critical Role, who, who are maybe aware of it or weren't aware of it until until this you know Kickstarter blew up, where would be a good place to start? Mm. You're talking about five years, hundreds of hours of content to try to catch up on that. It's, it's not exactly like going through Breaking Bad, which is you know, <laughs> five or six seasons of a show and you can get caught up in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. So for, for the uninitiated... How how would what would you recommend for people to get started? For the uninitiated, if you've made it this far, I commend you into the yes. podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you are you are truly loyal. Um, so, Critical Role uh, it has two campaigns, uh, both with like you know, it's a D and D campaign with uh, one set of characters and another set of characters. Um, and their first campaign, I think, is actually kind of a rough start. Uh, it it is very clearly a new project that Geek and Sundry wasn't sure would be successful, and so it, it feels a little amateurish. And so if you've seen the hype around Critical Role and you start with Campaign 1, Episode 1, uh, I think you'll look at this and say, what, what the hell is this? Uh, the, their sound sucks. Uh, everyone looks washed out. Um, campaign 1's great. That's where I got my start. Um, but if you're new to Critical Role, I really suggest that you start watching uh, from the beginning of the current campaign. Uh, their equipment is great. They have spent more time actually considering their characters because the first one, the first campaign was just an offshoot of the ongoing D&D campaign that they had been playing together once per week or once per month for the past two years. So they, their characters were very much just sort of the D&D character you or I might spin up. They just happen to be incredibly charismatic professional actors who can pull off uh, something like that. With this new campaign, the storytelling, the character development, all of that has the production value has all been ratcheted up to eleven. And so you'll get a very smooth experience watching it from campaign two, episode one. Um but honestly, if you just want to watch live, a lot of the fun of Critical Role can be watching live. Uh, if you like interacting with uh, the fan community and the chat and sort of live tweeting or whatever your social media of choice is, um, you may want to read or watch recaps of the campaign to thus far so you can watch live and then maybe go back and watch it for yourself to make sure. Um, if I can, if I can toot my own horn, I write recaps of every Critical Role episode on D and D Beyond uh, the day after the episode airs. Okay. Um, so you can go back into the D and D Beyond archives and go to the Critical Role tag and sort of read through my written summaries. If you're a if you're a a, a word focused learner, um, but. If you would rather watch a little bit of video content, maybe 10 minutes of video content rather than a full three to five hour episode, um, then Critical Role and Geek and Sundry produces their own their own video recaps. Um, and I say Critical Role and Geek and Sundry because uh, you might have to be a little bit diligent about going about this because even though Critical Role is now its own entity, Geek and Sundry still has the rights to host and broadcast everything that they produced before the split. So you'll want to go into Geek and Sundry's YouTube channel to watch 
the start of Critical Recap, their recap show. Um, and in then you fairness, will. Have... See, in fairness, it is a little bit of a tangled web. <laughs> it is. It's a very tangled web. Um, I, I, I don't know how anyone would really be expected to unravel it without some diligence on their part or someone explaining it to them. I'm, I'm happy I can explain it to no. people. Because I, I would want to that. figure it out. And I, and I appreciate your willingness to write recaps. I, it was one of the articles I wrote, I guess it would be last year, about after when I after I, I DM a session, what I've started doing over the last six months or so is just after my players leave, I immediately sit down and write a recap. And then I send it to all the players with like important locations, important characters, like funny moments from the session. And I send that out because it's fresh in my mind, and then I don't have to think about it. Hmm. And then when we meet, usually it's like three, four weeks later, because we're playing about once a month now. It's just, it's there. And yeah. it's really, really helped the momentum for the game, because I or the players don't have to struggle to remember what happened last month, because we're all busy with family and work and everything else going on. Um, so just plug in that concept, and when you mentioned the recaps, it made me think of it. Yeah. Um, I know that some members of the cast appreciate the recaps. Uh, they've told me that themselves. Um, but being able to run a live stream show and be able to like look back at the tapes and see literally what happened in your prior D and D session oh, has got to yeah. be a godsend. I mean, uh, especially if you have the time in your week, like if you're doing it professionally, like the critical role people are, uh, they can actually afford to spend an hour or two going back and reviewing the tapes and seeing what happened. Uh, <laughs> because I got to, I, I got to say, if you are, uh, streaming uh non-professionally if you're streaming as a hobby and you've got a day job and a life to consider uh that might not be something you have the luxury of doing right i even think it was a dm i was like wait what act what voice was i trying to pull off for this yeah. character last time yeah then it just all ends up sounding sounding like a bad sean connery or something it's, <laughs> it's like ah whatever my players will figure it out they'll figure it out they're smart so speaking of just general uh D D tips and one of the things i wanted to uh, chat with you about before before we finish up here is uh water deep water dragon deep. heist yeah so you are one of the designers for water deep dragon heist kind of the lead, the lead designer it looks like uh i i just happen to have uh the alphabetically first last name okay that's what I, <laughs> but prominently involved fair yes. to say Yes, uh, uh, Chris Perkins would still be the lead story designer on this product, absolutely. Yes, lead designer, and then yourself and uh, a couple other folks, or a few other folks listed there. Um, so how did that come about? Like, when did you first get kind of get the opportunity, get the nod? Like, how, how did that start? Yeah, this is a good story. Uh, so I, I was contacted by Chris Perkins right after I'd finished the manuscript for the Critical Role Taldori campaign setting. So... Um, that winter, uh, the winter of 2016, um, I had I had been big year sort of, for you. A big year for me, like yeah, my God! Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. So winter 2016, I was uh, feeling feeling that sort of freelance famine. You know, uh, I had plenty of other stuff to do in my life, but like I wasn't writing D and D, and so it's like, oh my God, I just finished this book. I need to reach my feelers out and see what the next thing I can do is. And I had the good fortune to just sort of in a, a late night insomniac session, uh, wind up watching a panel that Chris Perkins had done 
um, at PacSouth that year. So this is probably mid-January 2017 at this point because PacSouth had just happened. And Chris Perkins goes and tells his story of how he became uh, Chris Perkins, basically. He talked about uh, submitting under the name Christopher Zarathustra to Dungeon Magazine. He talked about becoming the editor of those magazines and eventually being the lead story designer on 5th edition. And he said something at the end of it that I considered somewhat Willy Wonka-esque, which was, I just turned 50, and I know that I won't be doing D&D forever, and so I need people, I need to find people who who will carry the torch, basically. And I thought, that could be me! And I decided, uh, or, or I also know people who can do that, and so I... Uh, took to Twitter and I, I messaged Chris Perkins uh, naming all of the great adventure designers I could think of. Um, and I left myself out because I was trying to be very humble. Uh, <laughs> but one of the people who I named was a fellow named James Intercasso, who is now currently a guild adept for the DMs Guild. He has written for several D&D products. And also and, a designer on Dragon Heist. Yes, and my co-designer on Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And uh, James Intercasso, I gave him his first job in the RPG industry. I was the editor for N-World Insider, and he pitched uh, an article about chase scenes to me, and I was like, ah, you're hired. Uh, and so he and I already had a pretty a pretty good friendship uh, at this point, and he turned around and said, James Hake, thank you so much for saying these kind words about me. I can't recommend you enough. So this friendship I had made with James uh, led him to recommend me to Chris Perkins. And a couple of weeks later, uh, Chris messaged the two Jameses, me and James Intercasso, uh, saying, hey, I'd like you to send me a copy of what you consider to be your best work. Uh, DMs Guild stuff is preferred. And so I sent him an adventure I have on the DMs Guild called Temple of Shattered Minds that I worked on back in college. And I, because that was the, the thing that was all me, that was all my design untouched by anyone else. And I sent him the manuscript for something that I was working on for Kobold Press with Wolfgang Bauer's permission. And uh, uh, a couple of weeks of silence went by. And uh, in May 2017, I Probably a little earlier than that, like April 2017, I got a got an email from Chris saying, "Hey Jameses, uh, I want you to work on Waterdeep Dragon Heist with me." Or he called it Broadway at that time, the the code name for the product because they hadn't settled on an actual title. Um, I want you two to work on Broadway with me. Uh, I really liked your stuff. Uh, you will each be writing 70,000 words over the next three months of summer if you're up to it. Um, and I I lost. I lost my cool uh, internally. And I was I like, yes, say, I, I lost consciousness. I woke <laughs> yeah. up a day later. <laughs> I instantly passed out. Right. <laughs> um, yes. So I, uh, I accepted the gig, of course. Uh, and so over the next three months, uh, James, Chris, and I met over Skype uh, every Friday at noon. Uh, and we talked over our manuscripts and what we'd written. And uh, basically, uh, wrote this whole thing uh, communally. Chris provided uh, the invaluable setting Bible for Waterdeep, which uh, I... I saw change a lot over the course of that writing. Um, I, I, there's some stuff in there that I wish made it into the final product that uh, I'm probably not uh, allowed to talk about. Um, okay. 
but being Maybe it'll able, find its way into some kind of future supplement or something. I hope so. I oh, I really hope so. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, over the next three months, we bashed out uh, collectively something like over two hundred thousand words together, um, and we made we made this book. Oh, so, yes. And and uh, before I finish, it would be remiss of me to say I realized in hindsight after my manuscript was turned in that Matthew Mercer was a consultant on Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which I I realize now probably had no uh, ha- had a very large part uh, in in my being uh, brought on to work on that book because Matt had just gotten off writing that campaign setting with me. Yeah, and I, I think you've you've talked about without really saying it directly, but the importance of uh, building relationships, being kind, supporting other creators. And I, I think that kind of stuff has a tendency of working its way back mm-hmm. in your favor from time to time, um, as opposed to just trying to, you know, go it alone and not really talk about other people's work. And I, you know what I mean? I think it's just, I think it's really great that, it seems to be an example of how to go about doing things in a pleasant way. Yeah. It's, it's worked out for you. And you mentioned, I think at the beginning, like you've had a very fortunate run mm-hmm. um, here, but it doesn't seem like that's an accident. It seems like you've cultivated that, that outcome. I, I like to think so. I mean, there's, you can always uh, look to luck. You can always look to privilege, but uh, those, those elements had some effect for sure. But whether you call it karma or paying it forward or whatever, or, or just being a good person, uh, the friendships you make and the relationships you build and the dedication to uh, to working hard for both like your actual work and in maintaining those friendships um, is utterly invaluable. And so for someone like myself and other people listening, because Waterdeep's been out for um, – Dragon High's been out for – Almost two years now, I think. Or a year and a half. Year and a half, I guess. Only a year and a half? No, I think it's only been out about six months, right? It came out in fall 2018. Oh, okay. Yeah. This, the last, like, 18 months have been a bit of a blur to me with my son and some other stuff going on. No, absolutely. It feels like all these D&D products come out. I'm like, I can't get to this. I don't know what I'm going to play. Well, I mean, we got Dungeon of the Mad Mage only two months after Dragon Heist, another full-size adventure book. Right. Maybe that's what threw off my schedule a bit. You would think a full year had passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So what what are your recommendations for DMs to to sink into this? Because, you know, I've... I've always liked the idea of running an, an urban campaign. Um, I just, in the past, I think having like campaigning in the wilderness and all that, it like been there, done that quite a bit. I, I think just kind of sticking with this very urban setting would be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what are your recommendations given that you <laughs> wrote thousands upon thousands of words for this book uh, in terms of running this content? What, what have you seen that has worked very well, and maybe what are some pitfalls that myself and others could keep an eye out for? Um, urban campaigns are a very interesting type of D&D because they, they allow you to divert yourself from the Tolkien-esque, Conan-esque idea of fantasy. Uh, you get to place yourself in a big city. And Waterdeep is a, a, an interesting uh, beast because it is very much – 
a metropolis. Uh, it's not really a medieval city at all. Like it, at, at most, or at the very least, it's like a, a major Renaissance Italy sort of place. But you it, playing in an urban campaign allows you to lean on modern tropes, I think, in a way that – uh, for like serious drama or like actual legit play in a way that uh, might only get you comedy in another type of D&D game. Uh, the Xanathar is an archetypal mob boss. Uh, Manchun is basically the emperor from Star Wars. Uh, you can you can really look to, to these archetypes um, in in a setting like this because your players are already familiar with them because of their real life. Uh I would say a lot of people in the Western world live in big cities or live near big cities. And so they have an idea already of what big city life is kind of like. Uh, we can fantasize all we want about, you know, being a being a ranger who sleeps under the stars and walks through dark forests and uh, does all that stuff or, or a barbarian who lives in the frozen north. But we only have our our ideas or or media to draw from. Uh Pulling in the role playing a little bit closer to the chest makes it easier to draw on real life experiences. And the more authentic you are to your real life experiences, I think the more enjoyable the campaign can be. I think one thing that's been intimidating for me in, in running a, a urban campaign is I, I worry about my ability to improv a setting that way mm. of just thinking about every street has its story. Mm -hmm. And there's so many dozens, hundreds of characters roaming around and just the possibilities for the players to get into anything. In some ways that excite, excites me. And in other yeah. ways, it's like, well, I need to know the name for every possible <laughs> building and what's their backstory. And it, I think you, it can be a little intimidating yeah. getting into that. So how does Waterdeep Dragon Heist kind of help DMs roll with, with that type of anxiety. <laughs> mm, you're, you're right, because cities are such dense places. It can be hard to, to come up with the minutia of, of stuff like that, especially when names are concerned. You know, if you're in Red Larch, you only have two town, two taverns to worry about. But when you're in Waterdeep, you've got, you know, just like there's a Starbucks on every corner in Seattle, you know, you're going to have to deal with a new pub uh, <laughs> every city block. Um Although there should be just like the same alehouse that's a, a franchise within Waterdeep yeah. that's slowly choking out local competitors. If Acquisition Thing can franchise, so can this pub. Yes. Put, put that in a supplement. Like, that sounds that needs, great. That needs to be a DM Guild product. Yeah. Well, but but that's exactly what we're talking about, right? The the ideas from the real world present themselves uh, instantly. Right. And even if it's not, you know, realistic to a medieval setting, Waterdeep already is not realistic to a medieval setting. It is it is high fantasy uh, metropolis mishmash already. Um, but as far as dealing with uh, the little details is concerned, um, oh, here, here's something I can talk about regarding stuff that didn't make it into the book. One of the things I loved about the setting Bible is it had a lot of minutiae in it for the writers to draw upon. Um, there were a lot of just names of places that existed in whatever district that for uh, I suspect for space didn't make it into the final book because Dungeon of the Mad Mage ate up something like 30 pages from Dragon Heist page count because it needed it to fill out that whole dungeon. Um but nevertheless, uh, if you don't feel comfortable uh, winging it, 
um, then, you know, there's a huge backlog of older Waterdeep products from older D&D editions uh, in uh, on the DMs Guild or probably in some people's bookshelves already. And so for, you know, the book set up by these villains, which is kind of an interesting framing device mm. where it's almost like before you do anything, you pick the villain that you're most invested in or most wanting to run. And then it goes like villains and seasons. So I, from a design perspective, how did that come together? Uh, the Villains and Seasons was actually Matt Mercer's biggest contribution to the project. Before he was brought in to consult, uh, Manchun was the only villain, and it was kind of a mystery adventure. It was like, who who really is behind it all? And Matt pointed out to the Wizards crew, well, it's going to be spoiled day one. Uh, the promotional materials got to spoil it, right? Uh, and as soon as people get their hands on it, they'll know it's Manchun, so there's no mystery. And so they thought, oh, darn you're right let's diversify the villains a little bit um and so i i have touted dragon heist as a very replayable product um i don't know how many DD groups are actually going to want to replay this adventure four times it's a great adventure but uh some of the some of the beats get a little bit old unless you're willing to uh totally revamp the adventure every time and just sort of use it as a water deep sandbox um but what the four villains allow you to do is they allow the DM to uh, present that mystery to the players. You can play up the who is really behind it all because uh, all of four of these villains, their plans are swirling about simultaneously. Uh, you as a DM just happen to choose which one uh, strikes it rich and actually manages to have their plan go off. Which is a... I wonder how many DMs have like picked one villain, and then as the game progresses, they're like, uh, maybe I want to choose a different one. <laughs> I suspect many. Yeah, all these villains are really good. I like them all. Yeah, because you know, I, one of the things I've been sort of speculating about is running a campaign that has very little prep, mm -hmm. where I think I've always tried to find a good balance between preparing a lot, not preparing too much. And I've become more open to just running with ideas that players come up with and just seeing where that goes and being comfortable, not having the next you know hour of the session planned out. Yeah. Um, and I think doing that in an urban setting is, you know, potentially really interesting because there's so much the players could get into and to just allow there to be no rails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For both them and for me, I think it would be exciting. Um, and maybe to balance that with something like Waterdeep, where there is a lot of infrastructure infrastructure that's built that if I need to, I can rely on and at the same time just sort of see what happens. Um, yeah. I, I think that would be fun. It's one of the things my players are right now going through the Sunless Citadel and they probably have they probably have the next session will probably be the end of it. And it mm. might, it's going to be a good time to reassess what they what they want as a group and so outside of the game i'm going to talk to them about what type of sessions they want like do they want more high fantasy would they want to do an urban setting do they want to do dungeon delves and i think it's useful to check in with your group from time to time on things like that um now if you're absolutely in the the, if you're in the middle of the campaign maybe it's it's a little cumbersome uh, but if you're between things i think it's useful to to check in on stuff like that I think you're absolutely right. Being able to communicate with your players and actually like drop the mystique a little bit and just talk to them 
uh, is a skill that not enough DMs have realized is vital. Um, whenever someone has a problem with their campaign and they ask me, like, how do I solve this? Uh, they always seem to think that they can use some sort of in-game mechanic to fix their social problems. Um, and I'm like, no, you can't do that. You, I, I know it's hard, but you have to talk with your players and you both have to want to reach an agreement with one another and figure it out. Right. So, yeah, I, that's definitely something I, that I've, I've done over time. Just, um, you know, talking to players about what what kind of game do they want? But I, I think from a player's perspective, you're just excited to show up and you know roll some dice, talk to friends, play your character. Um, but I, I think you, I think everyone has some wants and needs, whether it's you know good role playing, exploration, combat. Um, so, any other final tips you'd recommend for how people should navigate the the Waterdeep? Dragon Heist product? Yes. Um, if you're looking into playing Waterdeep Dragon Heist right now, I would say that the best thing you can do is not get hung up on canon. Um, Waterdeep is a big city. It is a city that has been uh, touched by many hands, by many different people uh, over the decades that it existed since it came forth from Ed Greenwood's brain to the moment that I, I laid my muddy little fingertips upon it. Uh, there have been dozens of people. And Many of them are uh, DMs who have never written for an official Waterdeep, but who have made a Waterdeep of their own for their own home game. And no one, like especially if you're not playing online, uh, I can't guarantee people won't won't come and yell at you if you're streaming a game. But if you're playing for you and your friends and in the privacy of your own home or in like a gaming shop or anything like that, make Waterdeep whatever the heck you want it to be, because it's your game. You should be able to do that. Yeah, I like that. And just to make things your own, mm-hmm. we'll do whatever that works for you. There's and, a lot of and for the group. Yeah, there's a lot of information that's built up over the years, whether it's in Waterdeep Dragon Heist or if it's in you know one of the second edition guides to Waterdeep. And there's a lot of stuff that uh, is sort of designed to be usable uh, in part by everyone, but in whole by no one. So you have the great joy of being able to pick and choose what you want or to discard all of it and just make what you want from whole cloth. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the core of all of all tabletop games, all, all campaign settings. Um, but I think everyone needs to be reminded of that from time to time. Yeah, no, I, that's great. That kind of ties into what I was just talking about in terms of just being willing to make stuff up with your players. Like, mm-hmm. just, that's sometimes some of the most fun stuff that happens in our games. Is it's not in the rules, it's not in the book, but we're all just going with it, and that's that's enjoyable. So if folks want to ask you questions, if they want to contact you on all the social medias, what's the best way for them to find you? The best way for you to find me is on Twitter. I'm there more uh, – I'm, I'm on Twitter more frequently from my, than my uh, – can't talk. Sorry. I'm on no Twitter words. too much for my own good. <laughs> uh, That'll happen. Yeah. That, that... <laughs> um, but if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my handle on Twitter is at James J. Hake. Hake is spelled H-A-E-C-K. Uh and I try to be responsive to anyone who wants to ask me questions or, or chat or talk about their favorite games. Um, 
That is the best place to find me. You'll see my articles on D&D Beyond. I try to be pretty uh, responsive in the comments to my articles, um, but I do like to keep uh, discussion on track as far as articles are concerned. So come come to my Twitter if you have miscellaneous stuff you want to chat about. Uh, come to the articles if you want to talk about the content. And is there any other uh, official D&D products that you're announcing that you've worked on or that's kind of under wraps? Um, so stay tuned very soon. Uh, for something it's i it's not wizards it's not critical role you know it's nothing of that nature um but i do have a pretty big announcement coming up uh i think in the week to come um okay that said a couple weeks ago i published uh, a thing with my fellow dragon heist co-author james intercasso and tomb of annihilation co-author will doyle uh called dragon heist forgotten tales and yes. i was saying earlier that uh dragon heist uh, is not inherently uh, as replayable as uh, I might think it is. So James, Will, and I decided to make it that way. Uh, we took, uh, we made it easier to uh, provide unique beginnings and endings to Waterdeep Dragon Heist by taking the focus away from, say, the Xanathar and the Zentarim uh, Thieves' Guilds and putting the focus on the Dark Elves and the Devil Cult that were operating within Waterdeep. So if you've got a Waterdeep campaign that's focused on one of those factions, Dragon Heist Forgotten Tales on the DM's Guild uh, might be right up your alley. Fantastic. And so that's just DM Guild. If they search for that title, easy, quite easy to find. Yep. Um, uh, Dragon Heist Forgotten Tales. Uh, okay. It should pop up right in the search bar. Wonderful. Well, I very much appreciate your time and, and kindness. And uh, last week, you know, interacting with me on Twitter, and we've interacted, I think, at other times too. But yeah. uh, you know, I really appreciated your just thoughtful replies to that, and your willingness to come on here and and talk about these topics, which I know can be a little a bit difficult to just talk about in 160 characters or whatever the limit is now on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I always appreciate these longer conversations because I think it helps to, to flesh out things. And uh, I hope people benefit from uh, having a chance to listen. So me too. Very much appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was yeah. great to talk with you in a, in a longer form than just the meager constraints of Twitter. Yes. And I may be picking your brain more if my group decides Yes, we want to do an urban adventure. So if I'm scrambling around sending you tweets in the middle of the night, um, how should I do this? Uh, <laughs> hey, man, get in touch with me whenever you want. It's it's a thank you ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, sir. Have a wonderful night. You too. Bye now. Thanks. Limitless Adventures and I are still selling no assembly required for $5. And every penny of that $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The book is a PDF of... 10 highly detailed uh, monster characters that are available for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. It has wonderful art, a lot of backstory, and will be a great resource for your game. And again, every penny of that $5 goes to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find No Assembly Required available for purchase through Limitless Adventures. And to find that, that is limitless-adventures.com backslash no dash assembly dash required. And you could also check out limitlessadventures.com for a lot of other great fifth edition materials. And if you scroll down through the page, you'll see the no assembly required icon to click on it for more information and the availability of the PDF for $5. So check that out and you're supporting a great cause.